Hello, and welcome back to Dark Stories from the Campfire. This is our Christmas episode, and we have three dark tales to help you celebrate with. Our first dark tale involves a young surgeon who, when home for Christmas dinner, finds himself attending a seance. And when the ghostly image that is conjured reminds him of a past misdeed, the surgeon is forced to make a confession. We present to you Christmas Seance. I hope this letter finds you well, my old friend, on this Christmas day, and I do, once again, apologize for not accepting your invitation for dinner, though I am sure by the time you have finished reading this letter, you will no doubt understand why I have chosen to decline. For once I have completed this, the last of my arrangements will have been made. I did not wish it to end this way, and had you asked me the year prior, I certainly would have told you my future plans would have been quite the opposite of where I find myself at this very hour. But alas, such is not the case. For ever since that fateful Christmas day, one year ago tonight, my mind has been ill at ease, and the conjuring of the spirit has haunted me ever since. You will no doubt remember my parents' pension for holiday parties and meals, save for last year when they decided to indulge in the recent trend of an octave. Even with the shortened guest list of five people, with myself and my parents completing the eight necessary, the social gathering was merry and joyful. I was told more than once it was a pleasure to witness my presence at the Christmas dinner, but were curious where I had been the year prior. The guests were both horrified and eager to learn that I had, in fact, been accepted into surgical college at the university, where unfortunately my studies had held me up the previous year, and hence my absence. I'm sure more than one of my parents' guests noticed I was apprehensive in revealing any intimate details of my studies, and at least one commented on my sorrow demeanor. I told them I was sorry that any details I would give would surely ruin their appetite they have developed for the feast, and any less than a cheery demeanor was due to fatigue of long hours in the study, though I am not sure how convinced they were. At five till eight, the guests were called into the long dining room where for the first time that evening my parents made their appearance and were seated in their respective spots. Then at exactly eight o'clock, the servants entered with the first of eight courses. The conversation was initially light, more gossip than substantive, but as the courses came forth from the kitchen and more wine was drunk, the conversations turned more lively. It was during this time of merriment that the last course was brought out, along with small gifts for not only my mother and myself, but for each of the guests as well. They weren't much, mind you, just small tokens of appreciation. One guest received a fountain pen molded in marble, with another a golden brooch in the shape of a pineapple. For myself, a small silver surgical knife. As the guests thanked their host for the gifts and the meal, my father rose and announced that he had yet one more gift to give us all, if only we'd follow him to adjacent room. Obediently, we followed and soon found ourselves in a darkened room illuminated only by a candelabra, which sat upon a round table with nine chairs encircling it. Eight of the chairs were normal dining room seats. However, the ninth was more ornate with armrest and a high back. The rest of the room was empty and still, for not even a fire had been lit in the fireplace. My father motioned to us to enter and we did with great hesitation. For even the most inebriated among us knows now sober at the sight. All will be explained, we are told, so have no fear, and as soon as we are all were seated, we could begin. Again we obeyed my father's command, each taking a seat around the table. I have heard, my father began, 
of what they call mediums and their skill in communicating with the dead. So, for my final, albeit rather morbid, gift to you all, I present to you Madame Dupont. With that, a bell was rung, and a door somewhere deep in the darkness was opened with a figure, dressed from head to toe in all black, crept into the candlelight, taking the high-backed ornate chair. There was silence for several moments, as all eyes rested on this Madame Dupont. At length, she lifted her hands to raise the black veil. If you would kindly take hold of your neighbor's hand, she began, looking at us, but also behind us, we can begin the ritual. Whatever may happen, or whatever you may hear, please don't release anyone's hands and break the circle. Confused, we interlaced our hands, looking about the room, wondering what would happen next. But no sooner had this happened that Madame Dupont began whispering something under her breath. It sounded gibberish, for the few words, if you would be nice enough to call them that, I could hear were meaningless. Her chants began to grow louder, and I looked about the table wondering if anyone else shared my perplexed state. But all I could see was everyone transfixed upon Madame Dupont and her theatrics. A few more minutes went by with her chanting, though now in a lower volume and monotone. Suddenly, she began to convulse violently, with the guest at the furthest end reminding those sitting next to her to continue holding her hand to not break the circle. Finally, Madame Dupont went limp and slumped in her chair. I had no idea what to think, or even if we should ask for assistance. We all sat in the still room for several minutes, when underneath heavy breathing, we heard a voice, high-pitched but soft, coming from Madame Dupont. Is your stomach tough enough now? The room was now cold, and it was though ice was forming on our skin. Again, the voice, is your stomach tough enough now? It was when the question was finished the second time did we all hear something shift in the darkness behind us. We all sat in terror as a white, almost translucent figure of a young woman entered the circle of candlelight. Her eyes were wide open in terror while her hand pressed against her abdomen. Gasping was heard from several of the group, and one asked if they were seeing was real. The apparition stood not too far from the table, with still the look of terror in her eyes. It took me a few moments to realize that she wasn't in fact not staring at all of us, but looking directly at me. Soon the other guests also noticed, and their gaze shifted from the spirit to me. It was then I saw a single teardrop fall from her eye, and I remembered who it was. Letting go of the hands of the people next to me, I tried to stand up, but only managed to fall backwards instead. This isn't real, I kept saying. There is no way this can be real. It is in this part of the letter, my old friend, that I must make a confession. I did know who the ghostly figure belonged to, though I knew not her name. As much as it will be hard to read what follows, it is harder to write. If you must believe me that I began with the best of intentions, but overzealousness of appeasing a superior overcame my sense of right and wrong. As you are aware, my inclination towards a profession in surgery was met with much hesitation from my parents, citing what they claimed was my delicate constitution. But sensing that they could not shake my interest, they eventually acquiesced to my desire and gave their permission for me to attend the surgical school at the university. What made my drive even greater was that the university had recently acquired a well-known anatomist who would not only be residing over the lectures, but leading dissection classes as well. This alone demanded a tremendous amount of interest, 
so much so that it forced me to leave earlier than I normally would to ensure I rented a proper room close to the university. My intuition was not unfounded, for though I arrived several weeks in advance, I secured the last room in the most desirable area. A day later, I would have found myself sharing a space with several other classmates in a condition close to squalor. I did much of the same for my first lecture, which was to be delivered by the famous anonymous himself. The hall was already packed by the time of my arrival, and though my view wasn't ideal, I could hear clearly enough, and every word that poured through his lips fell upon my pages and pages of notes. My obsession grew with my ambition. One day, towards the end of the term, the professor approached me one day on my way to class. He had noticed my talents, he told me, as was my eagerness to learn, that each Christmas he held a special class for the most gifted of students. I immediately accepted the invitation, and he said he was glad to hear it. That afternoon, I sent a message to my parents, apologizing that I would be unable to make it to the Christmas dinner due to my studies. After that, all I could think about was Christmas Day. When I arrived at the appointed time and room, I noticed a dozen bodies laid out on a dozen tables. A few of my other classmates had already arrived and had taken to inspecting the blood cake dissecting tools sitting next to each of the bodies. Soon thereafter, the professor arrived and welcomed us. He informed us that normally first-term students were not allowed into their dissecting rooms, but he saw potential in us and wanted to encourage our growth. You might as well learn now, he said, to toughen up your stomachs. Each of us took our place at the body we had chosen. Mine, of course, was that of the young woman. The professor instructed us to pick up our cutting knives and where to begin our incision. As I punctured the skin in the stomach area, I heard a faint wheezing sound. As I continued cutting towards the chest, the wheezing sound was heard again. I stopped my cutting and looked down at the woman's body, trying to determine where the sound had come from. To my horror, when I reached the head, I saw two eyes frozen in terror staring back at me, yet her body remained motionless. Our eyes had been locked for several moments when the professor, who was pacing from student to student inspecting their progress, had found himself next to me, mocking my hesitation and wondering if I had a strong enough stomach to continue being a surgeon. My fury at the humiliation got the better of me and I resumed my cutting, getting closer to the throat, all the while watching her eyes. As a single teardrop ran down her cheek towards her ear, her eyes became vacant, and one last hissing sound was emitted from her mouth. I tried to tell myself that what I had witnessed was not true, that it was a hallucination brought on by the built-up gas stored in the abdomen of a body in the early stages of decomposition. But when the conjuring of the apparition and his hand resting upon his stomach forced me to realize the truth, that young woman, the one who appeared during the Christmas seance, was indeed alive when I began to dissect her. For our second dark story, an anthropologist sets out on their first field study, but when she hears a story of an ancient spirit, she might be in deeper than she realizes. We present to you the Traveler's Tale. It is a three-hour boat ride to reach the village where Amanda Henderson would finally begin her first field research assignment to complete her doctorate in linguistic anthropology. She spent the time as her river guide gently pushed the boat forward, arranging her notebooks, checking her supply of sardines, and reviewing the few academic articles she could find in the Oktang 
a traditional societal group that resided deep within the rainforest. Though anthropologists have known about the group for more than a century, it was only about 40 years ago that the Agpeng had decided contacting the outside world, around the time of the occupation of the country. The main expert of the group was Dr. Albert Phillips, who is going to be Amanda's field contact and mentor while conducting field research. Nonetheless, Amanda kept telling herself it was an odd place to find oneself on Christmas Day. Her interest in the group went back to her undergraduate days when she came upon the works of Dr. Phillips. While she found his articles compelling, Amanda also realized there were gaps into what he was presenting, especially in their language structure. While this isn't abnormal, one scientist can't specialize in everything, it did help her focus on her academic goals. As soon as she was accepted into the doctoral program, she immediately wrote Dr. Phillips, wondering if she could join his research team. For weeks, she waited for a reply. When none came, she wrote again, reiterating her interest and in how her presence would be beneficial. Again, weeks went by without an answer. This routine continued for six months. Amanda had all but given up, when one day she noticed Dr. Phillips left a message in her inbox inviting her to the village that December. No hesitation was wasted as all arrangements were made within a few hours, including breaking the news to her parents that she would not be able to make it home for Christmas after all. On the morning of December 24th, Amanda boarded her plane and prepared herself for the 23-hour trip to the small village in the rainforest. The boat had finally reached the dock. The small town the dock was connected to was far busier than Amanda had expected it to be. The town's residents zipped back and forth in bicycles, and the street was lined with vendors selling various items. After the river guide helped Amanda unload her luggage, he politely pointed to the cantina where she was to meet Dr. Phillips to debrief before heading off to the village proper. Amanda thanked him, and dodging hurried citizens, she made her way through the town. At one point, she thought she overheard a conversation concerning a member of the Oktang who had vanished during the night, but the street was so loud she wasn't quite sure. Inside the cantina was hot and musty, and much warmer than it was outside. Amanda nearly fainted at the heaviness of the air trapped inside. Unloading her luggage and notebooks at an empty table, Amanda took a deep breath and wondered how ready she was for all this. It's one thing to fantasize about doing research in a far off location, doing what you love, but it was quite another to actually be there and feel the weight of your own expectations on your shoulders. A waiter stood in front of the table looking at Amanda. Anything cold, she said to the waiter, or a bear, whatever you have. The waiter nodded and headed back towards the bar. Amanda wasn't too far behind her, as her body finally let her know that after nearly nine hours of continuous travel, it was time to use the bathroom. She figured if anyone knew the proper place to relieve oneself, it would be the waiter at a cantina. When she returned to her table, her drink was already sitting waiting for her. She inspected the glass, found it was clean enough, maybe a little dusty, and took a sip. It was bare all right, but not like she was used to. Amanda wasn't sure what time Dr. Phillips was supposed to meet her, only that the message said he would arrive towards the latter part of the afternoon. Seeing as though she might have several hours to kill, Amanda opened one of her notebooks and began to write down her initial thoughts and observations. Ah, another friendly face, and Merry Christmas. Amanda turned to see a middle-aged man sitting at a nearby table, leaning against the wall in his chair. I'm sorry, she replied. Oh, nothing, said the man. Just commenting on how you must not be from around here. Amanda gently smiled. No, she said. Pretty far off, actually. What brings you to the side of the world, then? Asked the man. I, uh, 
I'm a student working on my doctorate, Amanda replied back. I was invited by Dr. Phillips to join his research group. The man grinned back. Here to study the Uktang then? Amanda nodded without a word. And you say you were invited by Dr. Phillips then? The man asked. Then concluded with, well, that's interesting. Amanda looked at him oddly, but before she could reply, the man fell forward in his chair and said, Don't mind me. I'm just curious by nature, and since I am normally surrounded by the locals, it's good fun for me when a visitor arrives. No, I'm sorry, Amanda said, waving her hand. It's okay. My nerves are a little fried from traveling and being a new place. Uh, so what brings you here? Me? The man answered. I am merely a traveler. I've been to a lot of places. Okay... Amanda said. The two were silent for a while. The traveler had resumed leaning against the wall, while Amanda wrote in her notebook and sipped her drink. After some time, the traveler broke the silence. How much do you know about the Uktang? he asked. Um, not much really, Amanda answered. I've read what Dr. Phillips has written, but there isn't much beyond that. The traveler nodded silently, staring at her. How familiar are you with Orhu? Amanda shook her head. The traveler once again fell silent, breathing heavily. Or who is sort of a wind spirit, the traveler began. There's a very ancient spirit to the Uktang. How old, no one really seems to know. But oral legend says that back in the time, shortly after the beginning of man, a few hunters in search of game had gotten lost. And after a day of searching for the trail back to their village, came upon another village that was unknown to them. But as it was getting late, the hunters decided to make camp and ask for help in the morning. That night, a violent windstorm blew through the trees, destroying their camp. In the morning, once the winds had stopped, the hunters found themselves were not themselves. In fact, they had forgotten who they were and entered the strange village as though they had always belonged to it. The other members of the group grew worried when they hadn't returned from hunting and went looking for them. They found the village as well as where they had made camp the night before. All their belongings were covered with chalk. The group members entered the village and pleaded with the hunters to return, but to no avail. The hunters insisted they knew who they were, that they were where they belonged. In frustration, the old members of the group wiped the chalk onto three other members of the group and left. The next morning, the three who had received the chalk were in their village, acting like the three hunters who had left the day before. The traveler took a deep breath and continued. The same phenomenon was directly observed during the occupation some 40 years ago. Members of the Uktang were found roaming the street, insisting they were not who their family members claimed them to be, only for soldiers to come up missing shortly thereafter. It seems to be less than a coincidence that both these happenings take place on their holiest days, which to us is December 25th. Amanda thought for a second. What you are describing is not uncommon of a phenomenon. There are several recorded instances of traditional societies inventing spiritual justification for external pressures on the group. In fact, in Sri Lanka, the traveler put up his hand. Yes, yes. It is all folklore and superstition, right? But let me ask you this. This group, even with its minimal understanding by outside observers, always has the same number in its group at any given time. There is always 30 of them. How is that possible? People are born, die, and leave. Yet their number never seems to increase or decrease. The traveler looked deep in Amanda, who had furrowed her brow in thought. One last thing to consider, Dr. Phillips arrived nearly 30 years ago, not too long after the occupation ended. 
Why has he never left? Not once. Amanda had never thought of that before. But no, she concluded to herself. An entertaining story, sure, but nothing more than that. She turned to face the traveler, but before she could speak, he was pointing at her hand that was holding the glass. It was then Amanda noticed her fingers were covered in chalk. She turned in panic to the traveler. While you were in the bathroom, he told her. The traveler quickly got up and left the cantina. Not too long after the traveler had left, Dr. Phillips entered the cantina and stood grinning at Amanda. Amanda Henderson, I presume. Are you ready to join us? Looking down at her hand and back at Dr. Phillips, Amanda smiled back and said, Yes, let's go home. Before we continue with our dark stories, let's take a moment to catch our breath and try to regain our senses. For our final dark story, an annual Christmas party is underway, but when the guest of honor finally arrives, the guests have more in their minds than dancing. We present to you the Masquerade Ball. Beneath the clock that loomed over the hall, the great doors had yet to be unlocked, for it would be some hours before they were to be opened. But these were the furthest thing from the guest's mind at this particular moment, for they were too busy with the evening's entertainment. For this was the Christmas Masquerade Ball, the one gathering the hundreds of guests looked forward to each year. The masks were not necessarily required, for no one would be turned away at the gates upon their arrival, but each year the masks did get more elaborate. One guest wore a mask in the shape of a turtle dove, with a long cape of feathers reaching the floor. Another a bronze mask of a unicorn, while another an ornate gold-rimmed lamb mask that covered the whole head. The guests marveled at each other's masks, and mocked those they believed were lacking in ostentatious decoration. For if there was any time to press the boundaries of light and creativity, the masquerade ball was the best opportunity. Outside the hall was cold and windy, Large clumps of snow and ice swirled and dropped from the sky, and all life was perpetually frozen over. Yet inside the great hall, the guests danced around a great fire that burned and heated every inch of the space the guests inhabited, while a string quartet continuously played, never stopping to rest or to change the sheet music. They just played and played, and never the same song twice. At one end of the hall, a long table had been set up, 88 meters long and 8 meters wide, filled with food from all over the world. The table was always full, for as soon as a platter emptied, a servant would emerge from a hidden door to replenish it. More servants aimlessly wandered around between the guests, holding large trays containing full bottles of wine, which every now and then a guest would take happily and begin drinking. There were no cups in sight, save for a small chalice in front of the great doors. An hour before the great doors were to be unlocked, servants poured out of a side door, each carrying multiple boxes of decorations. The hundreds of guests, upon seeing the servants, let out a great roar of approval and applause. And those who were dancing began to dance with much more fervor, with the quartet picking up the temple to keep up with the blur of bodies circling around the fire. The servants, who each wore a stork mask, formed themselves into a semicircle facing the great door, standing motionless. The guests now became eager, abandoning all activities they were engaged in and began to congregate behind the servants. Gradually the conversations and music grew quieter before finally stopping, 
Even though there was a few murmurs here and there, the hall was silent as hundreds of eyes stared at the clock above the door. Then, at exactly a quarter to eight, the clock began to ring, and a sound echoed throughout the great hall. Each time the clock rung, one of the seven circular locks on the door began to turn and hiss, and steam was coming out from its edges. The crowd began to push forward while the servants retreated back through the door they originally came from. When the last clock bell rung and all the locks had been unlocked, the great door began to open and a blinding light poured into the room. The light only lasted a few moments, for as the light began to dim, a dozen people walked through the opening, staggering and dressed in dirty linen. In front, leading the people through the doorway, was a tall individual with long, wavy hair. One of the guests stepped forward and filled the chalice with wine, offering it to the tall individual. The person looked suspiciously around and shuddered. It's okay, the guest told him. Drink. The tall individual took the cup in their hands and sipped the wine, slowly but eventually emptying the cup. A cheer rang out amongst the guests of the hall. Handing the cup back, another guest stepped forward and began inspecting the tall person's hair. Oh, what pretty hair it has, they said. While another commented, and look at how long those legs are. Several minutes passed as the guests continued their observations of the dozen people standing before them. Then, without warning, a person who had drank the wine collapsed in pain and began to cry out. The guests drew in closer to watch. The tall individual wrathed in pain. The other eleven people watched in horror as green stems began to emerge from the tall person's arms and hands. Their legs began to fuse together, turning brown. Their torso elongating and the snapping and twisting of bones was audible. The guests began to rub their fingers together, smiling with glee, watching the transition happen. When the last of the cries were heard, the guests backed away, raising up a giant, twisted tree. The other people, finally seeing what the tall person had become, raced towards the great doors, only to be stopped by dozens of guests, all offering wine-filled chalices. The boxes the servants had brought out were finally open, with scythes, knives, pins, and sickles being passed around, as the guests laughed and clapped. Amongst all the merrymen, a ladder was erected and pressed against the twisted tree. One of the guests climbed the ladder up to the top of the tree. When they reached it, they held a star high above their head so all could see and yelled, Merry Christmas, to which the hundreds of guests burst into laughter and descended upon the trees with their tools.